look in the blink of an eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 33, Death Be Gone, Part 1. Hey, everyone. We are raising the vibration for trauma healing when we listen in together. We really are lifting the energy vibration. And that is good for trauma healing. It's hard to believe we will be ending season one soon. Well, this episode is really a two-part episode episode 33 and 34, as they go together. But I wanted to share them with you in an under an hour story bites. So thank you. And thank you for journeying with me so far. I do hope you listen to these two episodes together with a little time in between to digest. And then we'll be taking a break to produce episodes for season two. I know, it's hard to believe we will be ending this season after this two-part Death Be Gone series. I'll share more of the details with you about the next season at the end of Episode 34, Death Be Gone, Part 2. I know Episode 31 was upsetting for many of you because I heard from you. It was upsetting to me, too. This episode is intended to capture the aftermath of the relief and what it is like sitting beside a loved one who has just survived a horrific incident in a hospital. Well, where we are now in the blink of an eye story, I am wondering about what I don't know. And what is not being shared with me by hospital staff? Join me as we consider the implications for families who are kept in the dark when things go wrong in hospitals. This episode and episode 34, The Companion, will explore that further regarding resistance and resistance to sharing information And that will create the bridge into season two, where I will also introduce you to not only these issues we can contemplate further, but a number of people behind the scenes on medical decision making, as well as a body of work on trauma healing regarding how it is that we think that can heal our bodies and the implications for trauma healing practices for medical staff. And I will cover these topics in the accompanying Trauma Healing Learnings episodes as well, which you can listen to right here in the Blink of an Eye podcast feed. (laughs) So much to look forward to. Okay, for today in this episode, I hope you are inspired to think about your own life and ways you too have been prepared for whatever comes your way. So sit back, settle your spirit. This episode will hopefully inspire you, whether you're walking, on a drive, lying down. Here we go. Life can change in the blink of an eye. August 12th, day eight. It was finally peaceful again in Archer's room. Billy had arrived as soon as I texted him earlier that morning, 
and we stayed together again into the early evening. Neither one of us wanted to leave Archer's side, but we knew we needed sleep after the harrowing silent scream episode. We were all gassed. Archer was too, for sure. I know I was riding on fumes. And Billy and I were also exhausted from our mediation, not really having had time to process that either. But Billy had to go out of town on a work matter we had to service. We were just being slammed from one event to the other, it seemed. Our plan was that I would stay the next two nights with Archer while Billy was away, and Billy would come back as soon as he could. I think Billy was grateful. I know I was, that I could stay. I didn't want to leave Archer's side. He still needed to be rotated every couple hours like on a barbecue spit, even with the moving bed mattress, and he had all those tubes. He was very awake, but in a lot of pain. When he awoke around 11 p.m. in some distress, I asked about additional ways to relieve his pain. The staff said they had already given him the maximum dosage of fentanyl. I wondered what the maximum dosage was. How do you make someone in such pain comfortable? I thought that stuff, like, did it all. I tried to distract him. An hour earlier, one of the nurses had brought in a package that had been left for him. So now that Archer was awake, I said, Hey, you received a little present. I asked if he wanted me to read him the card. He blinked heavily, slowly, twice. Okay. I read Archer the small card tucked in the box. It was from church, and in it was a yellow prayer shawl. It read, Dear Archer, we hope you like this prayer shawl. The ladies meet weekly and sit in a circle with intention for someone who needs prayers and comfort. We took turns reciting a prayer with the intention of your healing as we made you this shawl. We knit and pray aloud. We do not otherwise talk. We made this for you, reciting the rosary. With each Hail Mary to our Blessed Mother, we asked for your healing. We hope this prayer shawl, made with love, brings you comfort and blessings. The Prayer Shawl Ministry, Our Lady Star of the Sea Parish. Wow, what a beautiful ritual, isn't it? I'd never heard of a prayer shawl before or of this beautiful gathering and ceremony for how they are made. Perhaps you have known about them. But if you didn't, I'll tell you, since I've learned about them now, that prayer shawls are small knitted or crocheted garments sent to the sick or invalid to rest on their lap or around their shoulders to keep them warm. <laughs> and to feel comfort. They're typically made by volunteers in church ministry, often women. I pictured the women in the solemn circle, focused and intentional. I was flooded with gratitude. Such a kindness. Yes, that was a little sweet lift today. That church, or the ladies who sent it, were from our church, Our Lady Star of the Sea. You know, the little church we attend when we're in Cape May for our annual vacation. It arrived at a most auspicious time. And when I learned who sent it, 
I was flooded with, I don't know, I, I guess I'd call it a double connection. I mean, we really didn't know too many people there. I may have recognized people over the years at church because we've just been going for so long, but the place is packed. And we'd go to mass and we'd exit and we'd hit the beach. We didn't know the priests really. I mean, we had our favorites, the ones who gave really wonderful homilies. And there were two we knew who were visiting priests over the years. So yeah, I mean, the place felt familiar. But gosh, for them to send us a package with such a beautiful and thoughtful gift felt really unexpected. Do you know about prayer shawls? I didn't, but I was learning. The hospital room was cold as ice because Archer's body was having trouble regulating the temperature. He would swing from searing hot to freezing cold. And we were either taking sheets off or layering on special hospital blankets as his body struggled to regulate. But he preferred the room cold. So cold it was. After I read Archer the note, I think I saw a small, faint smile at the corner of his mouth. And so I asked if he'd like me to drape the little yellow, I'd say it was about three feet by five feet prayer shawl around his chest and shoulders. He was so weak. I had to pay especially close attention to his little butterfly blinks just to make sure it was a yes. They were so sluggish, it was hard to tell. There was that one pull-out recliner chair in the room, and I was grateful for it. I closed the window blinds to try to block out the night lights of Atlantic City. And I turned off one of the overhead lights. The other has to stay on at all times, nurses rules. I got in trouble the first time and I didn't know. I didn't want to get in trouble again. They did prefer for all the lights to be on all night. So I felt it was a reasonable compromise. I was desperately trying to help Archer rest in that environment. You need darkness to fully rest. It was about 1 a.m. or 1.30 a.m. when we settled again. After a nurse came in to suction Archer's mouth and his airways from any mucus to allow him easier breathing. I zipped up my hoodie again. And I was so grateful I remembered to bring it from home. I bundled up. I tried to imagine the hot August air outside to try to feel warm. I wrapped my feet back in that balled-up sweatshirt, which is what I had been doing the last couple nights to try to stay warm in the chair next to Archer's bed. Dewey had left me a pair of little tennis socks. I put them on at night but you know how that is when it's cold and you have a sliver of skin that's not covered, you know, by a sheet or a blanket. You know how that is, like, like a strip of your back where your nightshirt rides up or your pajamas or the top of your neck where your crew neck t-shirt ends or your pajamas, is or they're open. Or you know how it is, that part of your ankles between your socks and top of your pants when you pull up your legs just trying to keep warm. I just couldn't get comfortable. Pete said he'd bring a blanket from Baltimore next time he came. I'd asked the hospital for a blanket, but they were for the patients. Staff came in and out of the room doing many things Archer needed, but it was otherwise peaceful. Mm. I thought about a lot of things. Whether you're a trauma patient or a family member sitting bedside to one. Either way, it's not easy. And you know, 
all those working in trauma, it's not easy for them either. I realize that. No one's perfect, even though that's what we all want and try to be. I watched Archer in the dark with the hand-knit yellow shawl draped over the top of his chest. I shifted my attention to a far away sound, a now familiar sound I was so on alert for, a medical helicopter flapping in the distance as it neared the hospital landing pad. I told you in the last episode about hearing this chopper and what it made me think about. I was aware of the surge of adrenaline in me as I faintly heard it. It reminded me to be on high alert. But I was also aware of what I believe I shared with you. This strange affinity I feel, I guess developed in just the last couple days of my heart going out to whoever is in that chopper and their family. It's extraordinary to me how quickly we can bond with others when we don't even know who they are. And we don't have to. We know their story. You know what I mean? I mean, every story is a little different. And each person and family is unique, of course. And yet, it's the same story. The human experience of confusion and loss and trauma and numbing. It's the same pattern. The same grip. I remember thinking that very night it must be why support groups like AA are so powerful. Well, they're powerful because they have God as the source of their power. I thought about a lot of this that night. My mind wandered to those I have felt a particular affinity with in my own life. Like when I meet someone for the first time or when I've known someone socially or in business or wherever, but not really known them much deeper than that. And then when I learn from them later, that they too lost their dad when they were little. I feel like I know them. Well, I know their story. I know that hole in their heart of abandonment. Or at least I understand it a little. And I instantly feel like I feel them. <laughs> I do. Maybe you have something similar in your life where you feel this way with others too. Gosh, I guess it could be on so many levels. Being the child of divorced parents, being the child of an alcoholic, having to get a job when you're really young, being abandoned by a parent, witnessing violence when you're young, Oh my goodness, the list goes on, right? Well, I had all these thoughts on my mind that night. In my notes, I found written in the margins, Chopper, me too. Which reminded me of the flood of thoughts I had had. Funny, all these years later, and now we have the Me Too movement. I think it's that same experience thing, you know, a phenomenon that binds us together when we have suffered a similar injury, even if we wish we were not part of that club. But here in the chopper, I said a Hail Mary. I did. Just like my mom and Ursula Began used to do. You remember Ursula Began? From last week's episode, even though the only thing Ursula did was drive us around as kids to help out my mom, since the age spread between us was wide, I thought about her 
You know, the only time we spent with her was in the car, to and from our house and wherever we needed to be, that mom could not take us but made sure we'd get there as children. I thought about the impression for a lifetime a person can make on you from the simplest, or maybe it was also the most unexpected interactions. You see, I told you how religious Ursula was. Well, we kids would sort of snigger and make fun of Ursula behind her back. It wasn't nice. She was an easy target. She was terribly odd, but also wonderfully good. In her presence, we sat bolt upright when she would call on us by name to recite a prayer as she drove, barely able to see above the steering wheel, peering intently ahead to the road. Children, she would say, as we could all hear the siren of some faraway fire engine or ambulance in the background approaching. Pray that they get there pronto. I remember being afraid she'd take her hand off the steering wheel with the fervor with which she'd say that and she'd raise her finger. And then I'd hear her say, Louise, start the Hail Mary, please. <laughs> and I would dutifully. And it made me feel good that we did, especially as all three of us in the back seat would chime in together. I liked it, actually. <laughs> I can actually thank old Ursula all these years later, for instilling that nice habit in me as it still brings me great comfort to pray for someone else. I'd never thought about that until now. <laughs> so I guess sirens have always been associated with something that it was important to stop for and to say a prayer for whoever needed it. Hmm. I wonder if someone said a prayer that Archer's Chopper get here pronto. I bet someone did. I do. I felt it. As I was never so grateful when that chopper arrived with our son. When you hear an emergency siren, do you do the same thing and say a prayer? As I sat bedside to Archer, I said a Hail Mary aloud this time, but it wasn't for Archer. It was for that person in that chopper and for their family. And I counted our blessings. A mother like Mary, <laughs> there was always enough love to go around. I think I learned that from my grandmother and my mom, too. Love just expands. <laughs> Thank you, Mother Mary. Thank you, God. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Grams. I am so grateful Archer is sleeping, finally and calm. We made it. We've made it through this scary day. I tried to rest myself, but I couldn't stop thinking about my mom, my dad, even Ursula Began. Oh, what can happen in our lives that we hold on to? The good, the glorious, the bad, and the painful. Anything and everything meaningful, really. Our own experiences and those of others we care about. Memories are powerful. 
I realized how much of what I had been teaching, studying, writing for so many years of my career as a mediator was all happening to me. I was a living embodiment of all those beliefs and teachings. In that moment, as I looked at Archer and around the hospital room, the monitors, the clock, the things we had hanging, I felt like I was a hologram for all those teachings, understandings, and beliefs that may not have fit together neatly in the law school or even in my mediation trainings or even in my church, but they did for me. And I had this experience that I was living all of them. I think that is why I was aware of being aware. Maybe you have had a similar experience that something happens in your life, something unexpected, something very hard that causes everything in your life to converge, an event, a moment, a crystallized awareness that you are prepared for this moment, whatever it is, however it unfolds. It was like that for me, at least in that moment, as I calmed myself and allowed my body to feel the gratitude of Archer's life. It caused me to think about other pieces of wisdom that I have learned from others and information I did have and what I did know and what I taught and passed along to others and what I did not pass along to others because it was so personal. But I realized I was living these learnings in high relief. And I was so grateful for what others have passed along to me. Here's another piece of that wisdom I thought about. When there is deep conflict or injury, the brain stores that information. In fact, it holds on to emotional experiences longer than any other data. In a small part of the brain called the hippocampus, I knew this at the time because of my work in conflict transformation and my interest in how conflict affects the body. Neuroscience, or brain science, helps explain why early memories are so etched in our memory. I have a friend and neuropsychiatrist, Dr. Dan Siegel, who explains it like this. When we were young, our brains were like fields of new fallen snow waiting for us to create tracks of memory. And each new experience was like a new set of footprints on that snow. That visual of fields of virgin snow has stuck with me. And I thought more about that as I was watching Archer. I kept getting flashes of Archer and the silent scream, the look of unspeakable pain and no ability to scream as he opened his mouth in agony, 
from all that pressure in his head. God, what he endured was torture. And I witnessed it over and over for almost three hours. The image was awful. And I wanted to get it out of my head. Every time I looked at him, the silent scream would flash quickly like a strobe light and then go away. As I studied Archer's face for what looked like ongoing pain, I realized that horrendous image that kept flashing was in my memory as an experience that was getting grooved in my memory bank every time I thought of it. Oh my God, I knew this. Help me, Lord, to release it. I knew I had to come face to face with it and tell myself it was no longer true. Archer was safe. I could see him. I could feel him. He was there in front of me. I was here with him. That's what emotional healing practice is all about. Creating new tracks. All these years later, now that I talk with you and tell you this story, it's the same neurological principle for trauma healing as well. We all have emotional experiences. The ones that were more emotional and meaningful or that gave us great pain or great pleasure, it goes both ways, got grooved more deeply in the footpath of the new fallen snow, if you will, of our memory. Because they packed a greater punch, or a greater high, the footstep was deeper. And when we ran the path again and again, returning to it over and over, it formed our beliefs around safety or danger, love or rejection, power or helplessness, and what we came to believe we needed or had and lost. Those beliefs turn that dirt path into a well-trodden thoroughfare. And the well-trodden thoroughfare became a highway over time our thought patterns. Well, the trauma in our own lives can become trauma memories in the same way, especially when they are highly emotional, shocking memories, which is part of the trauma experience itself. The trickiest part, though, with trauma is that we may not remember what our body has stored because of the fact that it was a shocking experience. Oh, the body is very intelligent. The body may freeze the memory into the memory bank without the ability to cognitively retrieve it until there's a trigger point. Either way, the memory is rerun consciously or unconsciously, or cellularly, energetically, and creates a belief. But a belief we are often not even aware of. I think of them as our blind spots. And when I have trained folks in conflict transformation and the Enneagram about their own blind spots, over the years, I have always looked at my own life and my own blind spots. It's helped me make sense of things of my past as well. But this experience with Archer 
I'd never had anything like this before. I had so much to think about and try and comprehend about so many things as I watched my lion-hearted son. So grateful he was no longer in that writhing, unexplained pain. And then it crossed my mind that as we witness another's traumatic experience, such as my seeing what was happening to Archer or when you hear a trauma survivor describe their ordeal in great detail, it's possible to trigger what is referred to as secondary trauma. Secondary trauma can come from either a second trauma that compounds that first primary trauma that's unhealed and impacts you in a similar way. Or it can be someone else's experience that triggers your own prior experience. I think that is why the Me Too movement creates the experience like emotional wildfire of immediate bonding. But all these secondary trauma experiences can get embedded in our memory banks and cause us great suffering as they form a belief or beliefs that are not complete or are even harmful about ourselves or about others. And these secondary traumas, just like primary traumas, can be the reason we get stuck replaying an old memory with the same emotional or physical reactivity. Because our body thinks it's happening now, that it's real, and that it's still happening. I think of them as now memories. Or even when we know logically that something is not happening, our bodies, without trauma healing, are still replaying it and reacting as if it is happening. Right? Like hearing a certain sound and being startled or having your hair up on end or seeing a particular profile of a person or hearing certain words could be words construed as criticism that throw you back to a time when you were not safe or were overlooked or were not loved. Or being in a certain situation like crossing a busy street that throws you back in time when you were in danger. Or being around others who might be having a lot of fun, but it throws you back to a time that was out of control and unsafe. Yeah, this is familiar to you, I know. Well, I'm sure it is because we all most likely have experienced some sort of primary or secondary trauma. I was thinking about stuff like this that night. I always loved Dan's field of snow analogy because it makes it clear that we can create new pathways and new experiences. After all, there is always new fallen snow, if you will, in the ever-replenishing brain circuitry, thanks to what we are learning in science about neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to create new neurons and new neural networks, even when we are in our 80s. I just love this. It's so hopeful. And it's hopeful for understanding the potential for trauma healing at any age. Now, some of this I'm telling you now, for me, five plus years after Archer's accident, 
and a lot more interpersonal work. But I knew about neuroplasticity back then from Dan. And I knew about conflict transformation from my own teachings and writings and research. And I knew about the patterns of the Enneagram. And I had a skill set I had been employing for over 20 years. But believe it or not, the thought didn't even cross my mind that we were still in the trauma. I mean, I knew we were when I talked to our mediator, Rachel. And I knew that the flashes of the silent scream were being grooved tracks of memory that would not be going away unless I did something to meet them and restore them and change their grip. But I just didn't see that everything we were living was a large, one big trauma experience. We were just navigating the best we could. So the very retelling of the story now is enormously healing, especially when I have all the notes and journal entries written in real time of what actually happened, including notes of some of my thoughts that I now recall and unpack a little now that I have a little more distance and the space that time affords. I guess I'm telling you this because I care deeply about you, every one of you, and I want us all to live joyfully, even after we've suffered trauma and loss. So before I go back to our story, I want to share something else with you. When I was bedside to Archer, day eight. Each time we're strong enough to go back and revisit a painful situation with a little distance and with curiosity, we have a chance to create new tracks. I think of this as a decision to be strong enough to be vulnerable. You know what I mean? It takes courage to revisit the painful past. And it takes vulnerability to heal. And when we do this looking back with another person who enters the conversation with us as a listener, allowing us to look back and does the looking back with us through the same lens of curiosity and wonder, <laughs> we together will have a greater chance of creating a new track and a deep one at that that changes the pathway of the old track. Because the brain is very relational. And the more we do trauma healing work with another person, the more we both are healed. I call that relational reciprocity. That is also why I think so many of you are writing me long emails about your lives. I want you to know I am listening to you. I pour over as many of those emails as I can. Please keep writing them. It is so helpful and healing for you. I know. And it is why you will also hear more from Dr. Ray Tolucci, the chief of the trauma unit at Atlantic Care Hospital when Archer was there through our interviews, where we revisited difficult medical experiences that often are never talked about between the patient and the doctor. 
We will do more of that in season two. As I am wondering about and curious about and open to the discussion from all angles of that relationship between medical systems, medical personnel, and patients and families, we will look back and we will look forward to understanding more about trauma and trauma healing and what is possible. And I am issuing an invitation to all of you to join me in that dialogue in future episodes and to consider replicating that dialogue in your own lives. It was getting late as I sat bedside to Archer, and I realized how dog-tired I was. I tried to close my eyes to rest, but my thoughts took me back again to what had happened earlier in the day. I looked at the clock. It was after midnight. So all that happened, everything that led to that silent scream, was yesterday now. I was happy to put it in the rearview mirror of yesterday. I still wondered why I couldn't get any answers. I had asked for a report and a meeting with the chief, but no one had yet responded. It bothered me no one had responded. In fact, not one person even said something like, I heard Archer had a very rough day. How's our patient doing now? Or, how are you doing, Archer? I know you had a terrible day. There was nothing. I don't know. Maybe they didn't know themselves, but they could have at least acknowledged. I don't know. Maybe I was making a mountain out of a molehill. I think being in a trauma ICU is confusing. I imagine it can be confusing for staff too. How are they to know everything? They can't. Everything happens so quickly, a lot of moving parts. But I just wanted people who were very knowledgeable, who had experience, who could tell me some of the things we might be able to expect in this ICU. My family and I, we had absolutely no idea. I wanted to be able to prepare Archer. Wasn't there somebody who could help us so I could do this? I can live with uncertainty. But there were things we should be expecting, even in that uncertainty, right? I mean, it reminded me of having my first baby. I knew about Lamaze and breathing and felt prepared. I knew it could be painful. I knew I had choices of an epidural. And I knew if something was unexpected, the doctor might choose a C-section. But when they put me on Pitocin to stimulate a contraction, no one ever told me how I would be slammed for hours with hard contractions that peaked quickly and ebbed dramatically, very different from natural contractions. That would have been helpful to know. As we muscled through having our first two babies this way, and I never knew the difference between a Pitocin contraction and a natural contraction until Dewey was born. No one ever told me. I wanted to know with Archer's injury, what could we expect? What could happen? The whole spectrum. I can handle it. I just want to know. But no one was willing to tell me. It started yesterday. I was really 
beginning to feel at odds with the medical staff. And as you know, I started asking more questions. They had said something had snuck in with the drip bags. What did they mean, snuck in? I thought they meant they gave them too much of something. Okay. And they said they were bringing his blood pressure back down. I thought that was weird because Archer doesn't have high blood pressure. And why did it shoot up so much? I hoped to find out soon. I hoped Archer was all right. The way staff practically ignored me had me more confused. A couple nurses had also indicated that maybe I should go home, that it wasn't necessary for me to stay in the hospital with Archer like I was. Was I in the way? I didn't want to be. Another told me that patients present with one thing and it can be something else. Okay, but what did that mean for Archer? It made me think something might be wrong with Archer that I didn't know. But that didn't make sense to me either because we really learned so much about Archer's health with the cholesteatoma surgeries over the years. I mean, he had them annually. They were major outpatient surgeries. He had them as a boy, year after year, at Johns Hopkins to replant titanium devices that would mimic the mollified interstitial bones in his inner ear that create sound to try to restore his hearing. He was deaf, totally deaf in one ear. I was worried that these cholesteatoma surgeries would impact his recovery now. Have you ever had an experience where something not good happened with you or someone you care about? or even in a relationship and you don't know what happened or why it happened and you're left in the dark and you begin to wonder what you did to cause it? I know not everyone might think that way, but I did. Maybe some of you might too. I just hope we get that meeting soon with the chief. My mind won't settle down. I was just so glad Archer was healthy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. Because I knew he was healthy. I closed my eyes and stayed there throughout the night alternating between trying to rest in the recliner chair and playing watchman. I thought more about that fentanyl, or what one nurse said was morphine, and that he was on a maximum dose. Gave me shivers. I don't know about you, but when I think of morphine, I think of maximum bad shape pain, like cancer, really bad. And really, really bad pain. And I also think of someone being out to lunch in La La Land. Why was Archer in pain like that? And I couldn't let that happen to Archer. In La La Land? Oh, I wondered what else they had for pain control. Surely there must be other things. I never had to think about things like this before. And then you know what else crossed my mind? Archer's brain. What was his brain thinking about as he lay there? What does a person think about when they are drugged in a hospital? Was he so drugged he thought of nothing? Maybe that was the idea of drugs. I didn't know. But I wondered about that too. He had been through so much. Was his brain running old memories too? 
was it running new memories of what happened today? God, is he thinking at all? Does he understand how paralyzed he is? Does, <laughs> has all that pressure in his brain changed it? I wondered if spinal cord injury and the excruciating vice grip pressure he felt for hours in his head go together. Dr. Radcliffe said nothing about pain. I just wanted someone to explain. Is this what spinal cord injury means? I wanted to know so we could tell Archer and help prepare him. I'd help him so he wouldn't be afraid. I have seen Archer very, very brave when he was about to undergo complicated surgery that lasted many hours on his inner ear when he was a little boy. I knew he knew how to be brave. And I had prepared him. That's all I wanted to do now. I was scared for what we didn't know. Nothing lined up. Didn't make sense. I was scared he wasn't okay. Will he be messed up for the rest of his life from this accident, from these drugs? Will he have brain damage from that monstrous head pain? Why couldn't someone talk with me? As I look back on this first week with Archer, it really helps me now to understand more about the experience of trauma, how all-consuming it is, and all over the board. Here's how crazy the experience is. It's so intense with all kinds of stuff that once was important that no longer seems significant, simply because it's not front and center like the intense stuff. I don't know how to explain this anymore, but will you know, and, and you will know if you've been in the trauma experience before. It's like feeling I was like fighting for Archer's ability to breathe just a couple days ago, and, and I got a call from my staff to see if I wanted to go to lunch with a client. And it was important, and everybody was doing what they were supposed to do, but it was just so surreal. I don't know. Like, what's another example I'm trying to think of? Like being... At the gym, you know, like you're sweating, you're, you're in the hardest workout you've ever had in your life with a trainer, you, I don't know, you pay and uh, you're trying to get ready for like a marathon and, and you've got three more minutes with the trainer and you're pumping the bike and you're sweating and some pretty girl comes walking by who works for the club asking if you want to sign up for a free three-month membership, something like that just surreal. I mean, it's important, but no. That's what it's like. No. So I'm watching Archer. I was getting really, really worked up about potential brain damage. I'm trying to settle down and just as I was settling my mind to maybe sleep a little bit. My law class, oh my God. It would be starting soon. What day is it? August 13th, oh my Lord. There was no way I could get my syllabus together in a week or meet my new students. I wasn't opening the hundreds of emails I usually do for work. Oh my God. I opened my phone to send an email to the law school. 
Whom do I send it to? I wasn't even sure. I felt so bad. I was sure they had been trying to contact me. Maybe my office already handled it. Maybe I could do it if they could find a sub for me for just a couple weeks. I've been an adjunct law professor at the University of Maryland for over 20 years. Oh my gosh. One of the craziest thoughts came over me. I thought of all that I knew about conflict and trauma and how little of the high-conflict relational experience I had incorporated into my classroom teachings. There just wasn't time when I had so much to cover with them about conflict transformation and mediation and ethics. But I thought then that I would bring trauma into their understanding so they could be more trauma-informed lawyers when I returned. Yeah, I thought it would be good for lawyers to be trauma-healing-informed. Oh my gosh, my thoughts. I shifted back to how angry I was, too. Like, why was I kept in the dark by the hospital? Oof, anger. I could feel my throat getting constricted. I remember having the thought and I wrote it down and I found it. Let your anger help you understand how your suffering is related to your past. It's true. Most of our suffering is related to unhealed wounds of our past. For example, I remembered other times in my life when I had been kept in the dark. And how when I found out, I felt helpless and angry and convinced that I needed to speak up or do something. But I was young and I didn't know how. And when I grew up, it was also unladylike to speak up. Well, I didn't have to be ladylike and just let it pass. I was a woman, and I was a mother, and I was going to get more information. I was just so exhausted, but I was so relieved Archer was okay. I finally dozed off. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Episode 33, Death Be Gone, Part 1, will be followed by Trauma Healing Learnings and by Part 2, which you can listen to as a companion episode. It will be published this Sunday along with those trauma healing learnings. Please make sure you subscribe to Blink of an Eye podcast wherever you get your podcast to stay connected to us. Our next episode will be our last of this season. Yes, this companion episode will be our last. We will be releasing bonus episodes as well as more resources and behind-the-scenes features on our social media. You can find us at Blink of an Eye Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Blink of an Eye Pod on Twitter. And we also have a website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com. All the links to our social media accounts are there if you aren't in a place right now where you can write them down. Thank you, dear listeners. Together, we are raising the vibration for greater trauma healing and what is possible. If the blink of an eye story has been meaningful or helpful to you so far, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
because that really helps new listeners find us. I can't wait to be with you for our last companion episode, Death Be Gone, Part 2. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue as they work through difficult, emotional, and complicated family, divorce, and family business situations. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. 